0: Why do you love being in front of the camera?
1: I think really I became an actress and a vlogger because I'm getting the attention I didn't get when I was a kid and I knew I deserved it. I knew I had a lot to say and I could say it in a really cute way and I knew right away that I was um, uh, different. First of all because that's what they told me, my mother. So, you you know in in Yiddish it was uh, which translates to you're gonna die alone um, oh, gosh. <laughs> no one will ever uh, think you're normal like she'd say you're not normal and I I'm not, uh uh-oh, not normal. People don't have friends, they have cats. I mean, lots of them, not that I'm against cats. I love cats, dogs, everything, but I I want to be friends with humans. I also, I want to be able to to work and have a job. So I have to prove that I'm I'm not crazy, I'm normal. Well, I saw what my mother and father paid attention to, the television. So as a kid, I knew just be on TV, people will watch you plus people on television especially if they were pretty had great credibility and you know after being told you're crazy you're crazy you're crazy and in yiddish which makes it a lot worse your whole life you want to prove you're 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 normal and being on tv makes people even crazy people look less crazy and i knew i could express my opinions and there i had the audience so it was just a matter of like how was i going to be on tv to express who i was especially since i was a terrible auditioner i really sucked i would have been a huge star if i were able to not lose my mind in every single audition that i had a line in Uh, it was funny i could always get the parts when i didn't have lines that was easy but uh, there was something uh, that just said do it right, baby, just, you gotta do it right. And I think I was trying to audition the way I thought that the person who would actually get the part would do it, which takes every, all the creativity, all the put yourself into it, out of it and I was just trying to kind and and I was so insecure I I was um, almost like uh, every I start every audition with I'm sorry can I start over and um, (laughs) let me just let you go back to your work casting the real people and I'll go back to driving back home out of the valley and when I came to LA I was 21 uh, from Montreal I'm like car did not have air conditioning and so what well, most of the auditions were in the valley and i would schwitz. and i i kept uh, failing at auditions and and I, I, I was working at um, the IHOP because, you know, working on my acting skills, like acting like I didn't want to kill myself at the cashier, yeah. cash register. I couldn't even make change. Someone would give me a 20, I'd stand there and cry. You know, it's like horrible. But I went through all that because I I knew one day I would succeed if I just didn't give up. I was reading like Napoleon Hill and all these like self-help books because as an actress you get rejected for a living. and and. And then um, unfortunately, I was me toed into a state of depression that I'm still <laughs> recovering from because every once in a while, some uh, horrible thing will happen, uh, show, biz related, man related, and the trauma just comes back, you know. And uh, so I have to deal with that daily, too. So I had a lot of. Um, very uh, negative experiences when I, I came here, not just losing my self-respect. I mean, uh, I, I I came here to be on a TV show. Um, I, I My parents bought me a car where we were living in Montreal. And I said, thanks. And I drove south, made a right at Ohio. And then just came right out here because I was going to be on this show. And it turned out the show happened, but without me. And so I, 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 was, uh, I saw it all happening. The producer apologized and um, I got drunk. And so instead of getting into show business, I got into hard drugs. And I got sober December 28, 1982, but who's counting? And so I've been alcohol-free and it was a, a, a journey back to be the reason you drove here, Hanala. If you were to write a letter to yourself
0: on that drive from Montreal to Ohio then to California, what would the first paragraph of that letter be?
1: (laughs) Uh, I would say, turn around because Montreal is about to become Hollywood. You don't have to go anywhere and then I would say, but knowing you, you really want to tan and you want your hair to look better because Montreal is very humid. A lot of people don't realize it's a r- island in a river, a volcano really, very, very humid. We didn't have air conditioning. I learned to suffer. I learned to have a lot of heartbreaks in uh, Montreal. So I would say, I know you want to get out of Montreal. I know you really, 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 really want to go. But I don't think you're ready. You're too sensitive. And the show's not gonna happen. Of course she'd drive here anyway. Even if you had read that letter?
0: If someone had read if someone had written that, you would still have driven.
1: Well, I think that I had a real passion to do this and, and I would uh, I don't think that I could have understood possibly how uh, I wasn't uh, capable of handling what was going to happen. I guess I would have had to tell her you know you're, you're, you're gonna um, be fed some drugs and then you're going to wake up with a naked man on top of you and you're going to make it a joke like, what is this naked man doing on top of me? You know, like, I can't figure this out. But um, it's not a joke. It will affect you forever. And it will affect your self-esteem so much that you blame yourself and you invite more of the Me Too experiences into your life. And um, that it's going to be a life of a lot of rejection so maybe you want to like stay home a little bit longer and trust me about this Montreal turning to Hollywood thing
0: but staying at home being told you're crazy from from the people that I've known that that's like their go-to line usually they've come from a lot of trauma themselves and that's how they kind of keep people in their place from the people that I've met that that's like their running dialogue that so would that really be an option wouldn't it be better to come somewhere new get away from that there
1: was I there was a safety to being in school I I could drink more responsibly (laughs) I did a lot of well I was in theater so we did a lot of drinking Um, I remember descending this staircase I had the lead in the play and uh, They built a very high staircase, and even when I wasn't drunk, it was high. And so I was waiting backstage for my first entrance, and the whole cast backstage, they were holding their breath, wondering if I was going to fall. And I'm like, "Oh, isn't being on stage scary?" And they're like, "Shh!" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to hit my mark. Okay, I got to go upstairs, stairs. Okay, you shh," and like. So I get to the top of the landing, and I'm looking back and, and the rest of the cast is up there going, <laughs> and I'm like, is I'm so relaxed, right, because I'm so drunk. And uh, I, I hear my cue, I open the door, and I'm absolutely perfect. You see, I live with my mother and I was a drunk and, an, and a drug addict, so I knew how to, like, act. I was an actress, I could act straight. So I, you know, I was already pretty much of an alcoholic in Montreal when I was doing all the the plays. Well, no, I started uh, on the theater, on the stage when I Yiddish theater. When I was very little, like four years old. So I I wasn't drunk then, and I, I do remember the experiences and being terrified. So I think that whether I lived in Montreal or whether I lived in Los Angeles, I would still become a raging alcoholic and drug addict. Which came first, your sobriety or starting the cable access show? I started my cable access show because I got sober on December 28th, 1982, 4 p.m. if you're counting and I counted every minute at that time because I wanted people to understand what it's like to live without killing yourself. I didn't think I could get sober. I only got sober because my husband said he was gonna leave me if I didn't get sober and I was an agoraphobic and I lived through him. So if he left, my life was over. What was I gonna do? Well, hope for a FedEx guy to come by, you know? Depends (laughs) on what he looked like, I guess. Yeah, but you can't count on that. No one was sending me packages. (laughs) No, I had lost everybody. Certainly the trust of everybody. Including my mother, unfortunately, the Holocaust survivor. I felt so bad, both my parents being Holocaust survivors, and here I am throwing my life away. But I, I did the best I could. Um, what was the initial question? The
0: initial question was which came first, getting sober
1: or the cable access? Show? Oh, right, right, right. So, so when I was, uh, well, nothing could get me sober. You know, I on my own. Uh, so when I uh, He threatened to leave me, as I said. I couldn't have that. So I said, well, you know what? I said this to myself, not to him. I'll go to one AA meeting and I'll talk about it for like a month. Because my mother stretched a five-year war into a 50-year story. I knew how to do this. Okay. So I, I, I thought, okay. So I'll get my stuff together. I almost drank on my first uh, on the way to my first meeting because I well I I'm, I felt I merged better on vodka. Wrong, that's delusional. I know. <laughs> so I thought it was inappropriate. So I didn't have the drink, and. I was shaking, like I said, agoraphobic. So just leaving the house to get the mail used to make me shake. And now I'm driving from the beach to West Hollywood. And so I'm like this, but I got there. And that was my first meeting. And I sat down. I've been sober ever since. That was my last drink of alcohol. And I thought, when I got sober, that. who do people need to know about this so um it just so happens i was in a building with a public access studio so i actually saw one but didn't think anything of it but then i read in variety foreign actresses wanted and i answered the ad and i said listen i'm from canada it's kind of like that really Foreign enough, and she said, "Oh, come on down." <laughs> so I did a show, and they all said in the studio afterwards, "You should have your own public access show." I went, "Oh no, no. what am I going to talk about? Working out because I become an aerobics instructor, and and sobriety." And I created Shape Up LA, and it was on for fifteen years, and then I turned it into when I heard about this new thing called YouTube. I'm like. Oh please, that's us on steroids, right? So I, I said I know how to do this. So I uploaded in 2006, and almost 400 million views later. Like what? So I, like I said, I knew uh, one. Um, one PR uh, company uh, told me, you know, you're uh, we can't, we cannot call you a doctor, or a therapist, because you, all you are is like a sober person with a lot of great advice and, and uh, you know, what can we call you? And so we came up with life coach in the eighties and then it caught on. So in 1982, I think it was I was on my first TV show uh, doing Shape Up LA, which then they asked me to be on other shows because I wasn't doing uh, Shape Up uh, Nebraska, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew where to do my show. And uh, so I, I got on a lot of other shows and um, I did movies. Thank goodness, uh, one of the reasons I did this show is because seriously, I, I suck at auditions. So uh, one time, my agent called me and said, in the breakdowns, they want a, uh, they want, uh, okay, My t- at the time, my name was Susan Stadner, but that's a whole other thing. That's before I took back my Jewish name and got married. But they said, the agent called and said, there's a breakdown, da- in the breakdowns, they, they're looking for a Susan Stadner type. So he sent me in, I didn't get the job. Because they wanted the Susan Stadner on Shape Up LA, not the one who sucks at auditions. So that's why I, the show just had to be the audition. I did get a lot of work. Like, um, they used my show, starring me, finally, in a, sh- a movie called Ruthless People, starring Danny DeVito and Bette Midler and a lot of other really good stars. And. I was the person I, they let me write all my own lines, like I wrote us uh, squeeze your thighs if you don't, no one else will, you know, <laughs> or squeeze your butt. Anyway, I wrote all the lines in there. It was about like ooh, ooh ooh four more. I wrote that, but uh, it was it was a lot of fun to see my show with a much better set and better lighting. And as a matter of fact, I thanked um, David Zucker, the one of the producers, directors, writers. Brilliant, wonderful, love you David. Um, I asked him, I told him that I uh, I wish I had this gorgeous set for my public access show to shape up LA and it was all sparkles and colors and he said well if you can haul it away you can have it. but. Like I didn't have a backpack big enough, or a crew because it's public access. So, but um, it was it was an experience to watch that. And then I did a zombie movie. I played an aerobics star too on a TV show. The zombie uh, is so mesmerized he lets the lead get away. It was a pivotal role. <laughs> more more of the four more kind of things. But so I I became known as like the actress you hire who. Place in aerobics instructors, you can see, I just let myself go. Not, right? Because you never know when the next job will come up.
0: You changed your name from Susan to Honola. How did changing your name change what you do creatively? Is Susan
1: still there? Is Susan a memory? Changing my name was um, something that happened one thing at a time. <laughs> People don't, like, why'd you go from Susan Stadner to Honolus Segal? Well, it's a little bit of a story. When I wrote my memoir, it was called My Parents Went Through the Holocaust and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. It took 10 years to write. It was 800 pages. Oh wow! And then I took out the blame and then the commas. <laughs> And then what was it? What was the page? Uh, 400. But I added pictures. I, I'm an illustrator, an artist, so I was able to always, ever since I was a kid, I would have all these cartoons that would express how I feel. And I'm actually quite good. I, I have uh, this ability to draw uh, someone just like they look without having them there. I use a picture, anyway. But uh, no, I I do uh, I, I can do portraits. But I um um. I went through such a process over the ten years of writing that book, that I think I became a different person at the end. And when my mom came to visit um, toward the end, uh, I didn't finish it until after she died, unfortunately. Uh, Well, what happened was we were at the airport and she looked at me with tears in her eyes and I was already crying and she was saying, it's not like I'm dead. I'm like, no, you're going to Canada. (laughs) But she said, she teared up finally and she said, oh, you look just like Hanala. And that was her sister. She said, oh, the people that come from the other village just to talk to Hanala. Just to talk to Hanala. Pam, I can't tear up yet. Okay. So um, I went home, got on the treadmill, still crying. And uh, when my husband at the time, that was two husbands ago, if you're counting, um, and I said, Pete, I want you to call me Hanala. And they're like, why would you watch now? And I explained it to him and he said, okay. He finally about three years ago started calling me Hanala, it took him a while, he's a stubborn guy. So Hanala was a name that like, my therapist got right away and she was all behind it, yay. But then I became um, Seagal when I married a Seagal and became an American citizen while legally married as a Seagal. So to unsegal myself would have been very difficult and expensive. <laughs> so um, you might say, well, why not just get rid of the name? Well, I don't believe in throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And I love the straight A's, Hanala Segal. And it is pretty, because otherwise it would have been Hanala Stadner, which... Doesn't seem right to me anymore. So I've been a Hanala Seagal for years now, <laughs> and it fits, it's gentle. And when I was a little girl, my mother didn't call me Susan. <laughs> uh, she uh, Well, actually, she, that's how she called me when she was angry, Susan. But I never heard Hanala angry. It was always Hanala, 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 oi Hanala. But it was never like Hanala. Although my sister, um, you know, everyone has that sister. Uh, she, she tried to ruin it for me once too. I told her that I hear Susan the way she used to say it, which tends to be like Susan, Susan, Susan. Susan, which I didn't need to hear in my head anymore. So uh, when I told her that, she went Hanala, (laughs) Hanala. I'm like, oh, that's so like her. Which is why we don't really talk. What
0: I loved about watching trailers and reruns of your cable access show that you have on your YouTube channel was the comments that were also how people really related to you, and they felt uh, a. Kinship, and they wanted to call because back in the day, of course, there were no, you know, YouTube. And what was something that someone said that you, it
1: it changed you? One of these messages, oh, something positive. I had, I had a father uh, call with a heavy Middle Eastern accent, and he said, "Oh, well, I have to back up. I did a show where I wore a little girl dress with crinolines, and my hair was up in pigtails and bows, and." And I had a face that could pass, you know, for a little girl. And it was so cute. And oh. So I talked as if I were an adult explaining what it's like to be shamed by adults and the trauma and how it's hard to really believe in myself. And I hear no so much. And, and it's always like a, when I'm in my most excited that I get yelled at. Oops! I forgot to watch, and how it makes me like shrink into myself, and 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 I don't understand when I'm being hit, like what I could've done, and how I could. I'll do it better. I, I don't know what I've done, but I'll do it better. I'll do it. I won't I'll stop. Whatever. But I did it all with comedy because my comedy wellness brand was started back then. I just didn't know it was called a brand, you know. So um, this this man said when he watched my show, and it was like 22 minutes it made him understand what his children went through when he yelled at them and when he hit them. Oh, wow. And he was determined to change it. Wow. And I knew that it's hard to stop doing a show even though it doesn't pay you nothing when you get calls like that. And also, oh, um, okay, so I'm, I don't know what, like 25 years sober at the time. And I'm at a meeting, I'm speaking and a woman follows me in and she says, can I talk to you? And at that point I'm like, is this about my ex-husband? Oh no, this is happened a few years ago because <laughs> women have stopped me to tell me, oh, don't ask, Dash and Donnie, don't ask. Anyway, so, um, so she said, no, I just need you to know that my husband and I used to watch a show while we were on crack. and um, And then one day we said, we should try a meeting. And they've been sober ever since. So it's like I planted the seeds, and I did it with comedy because that's how I like to learn. I like to laugh. I don't want to be, I don't want to be lectured. Um, If you can make me laugh, you have me, you know. And you wrote the book um, that now will
0: be turned into. It'll be adapted into a movie called Trauma Land. When you wrote the book, um, it was all comedy based as well. You were trying to make light of a serious situation.
1: Yeah, but I, w- I was too angry and resentful to make it really funny at first. <laughs> I needed I needed to release a lot of that. Like I said, release the commas. Um, but then uh, um, the shorter it got, the funnier it got. I was trying to make a, a comedy wellness reduction sauce. You know, just, <laughs> just bring it in to just the, the, the yeah, condense it. Yeah. yeah, and the screenplay, that's where it's, I call it a comedy, just a dark comedy because... Um, the, whenever it gets like heavy, there's a big laugh right after. I don't want a stressful movie, and because I'm able to make it funny, uh, it was just a matter of like, you know, what actually moves the story along. and What is the funniest? That's what remained, and then then you get your actual. Because yeah, we do in the movie. Uh, we flash back to my parents in Poland and my most disgusting and pathetic alcohol years. And although there's nothing funny about the Nazis, my mother and father, especially my mom, she had a way of, like, uh, this is me. I, I, uh, mom, did you just make that up? And she said, yeah. And I go, oh, I have to write that down. <laughs> That's how she was. And so we used those little gems. And my sister, who we talked about, who, you know, we, we are not close, did say something that almost made me, like, Belch. (laughs) She said, she thanked me for the writing, writing the book. She said it brought ma back. So she read it over and over again, just to make my mother come alive again. Though I did, my mother was so in my head, it it was kind of hard. Ma, me, there's a difference of a vowel, you know? So it was kind of hard. Yeah, she has a very distinct voice, which is why casting the movie is going to be interesting. I wonder who's going to end up playing Manya because this darling Holocaust survivor who's so just so bright and adorable, and she was really my inspiration. And that's why I wanted to change my name back to her sister, who died in a gas chamber, which is one reason I changed my name from Hanala to Susan. I forgot to say, I was born Hanala, not Susan. Oh. My sister looked at me and went, oh, let's name it Susan. Hanala's way too Jewish.
0: And you didn't want to finish the
1: book while she was still living? No, I very much wanted to oh, you finish did. it. <laughs> I so much wanted to finish it. Um, I, I uh, She gave me the finish. Uh, we were alone in the hospital, um, but I won't go there because I will definitely cry and give away the uh, an important scene. Mm-hmm. So,
0: I'm wondering if you can talk about how many times you've pitched the idea for Traumaland, and 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 what was the response, and
1: then why now. Uh, um, yeah. I don't think I would have finished. The script for Trauma Land. Had I not had this track record with Elvis and Nixon, um, starring Michael Shannon and Kevin Spacey, and people talk, I used to say Kevin Spacey and Michael Shannon, by the way. Um, If they don't know, it won the Tribeca 2016 centerpiece. That's like the prize. So, based on that, I was inspired to do this, uh, to finally finish it. I've been working on the screenplay since the book came out. Oh, Trying to adapt 2006. And, oh, oh, that's so many. Oh. 700,000 drafts. So, <laughs> not really, not really. Uh, but it just oh. felt that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's a, a lot of drafts, a lot of, so, but, but uh, just starting over too. Just And what I would do, is I would take like master classes, screenwriting, I'd watch film Courage, I'd get tips. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, especially um, when it came to writing a synopsis or summary, I actually I would watch your channel. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> you, it was part of that work we integrated, so it actually is. Absolutely. So, um, and here's what happened um, other people seem to believe it too like, wow. You wrote and you co-wrote and co-produced Elvis and Nixon. Now, the truth is that I had been uh, given this offer that if I could complete a really good script about the meeting when Nixon met Elvis, uh, I could uh, actually perhaps get it produced. So I had a deadline. So for 30 days, uh, first of all, back then, this was about uh, five years ago, six six years ago maybe, what I did was I, I had to order the DVDs from Netflix to research this meeting that Elvis had with Nixon. I didn't know anything about it. So I saw all the uh, the people who were there talk about it. And one of the, the guys that I, I saw was Jerry Schilling, and he said he was there for the whole meeting. And I went, oh. and the whole trip and everything. It was a really interesting story. And I also read Priscilla Presley's book, and that changed everything. That gave me motive. And so I, I thought, I got, I got it. I don't want to write a screenplay about dead Elvis. Boo-hoo. You know, I liked Elvis. I, I don't want to write. Yeah, you know, That's a tragic end. So what I did was I had just written two screenplays that I never even bothered pitching because I thought they were getting produced so it fell through, that were buddy flicks. And I went, I'm gonna do it about Jerry. And that's how I came up with the idea of how to format the screenplay and everything. So I, I wrote the screenplay, and then Carrie Elways wanted uh, to direct it. And then he added a, a little bit and became one of the co writers. But I'm the one who, who fleshed out that story, and I'm very proud of it. So I'm glad that we're able to use that to get us to the next level with Traumaland. That's why I finished it because I had a feeling that people would pay attention to a produced screenwriter. Elvis and Nixon took you 1 month to write? It was a challenge? For it's a 1 month challenge. Uh, well, I think I think that all in all from when I started the first page Yeah, it was was a month. And we had a director at the time, so I would send him my pages every night, and I found that was helpful too. Oh, so he was almost like a sponsor, like accountable. Yeah, Okay. every night. I couldn't take a day off because Ryan was expecting a page or two, and I was inspired. Plus, I found out I really love putting words in men's mouths. (laughs) Okay. Get in there. Stay in there. Use them. (laughs) <laughs> so I, um, I I enjoy writing for men, uh, men's roles, and so that was like more fun for me. Like I said, I'd already warmed up on two other screenplays, and um, I felt like I knew Elvis. I was already doing Elvis songs, like in my band, I sing "Suspicious Minds," and I was born the day. Elvis got his first gold record, and he recorded "I Want You, I Love You, I Need You." Is that the way it goes? I'm dyslexic. It's one of those. It's <laughs> all, all of them, but not necessarily necessarily in that order. So um, I, I, I think that as a Fetus, I heard, Elvis. And then my parents never had air conditioning, so the windows were open in the summer because I was born in April. Okay. And so I think um, I was born into Elvis. And so I, when, when it came to writing him, and also I had uh, the Elvis impersonator behind me, Sure. I really, really really want this badge, <laughs> and, um, the, so I, I enjoyed writing it. It was actually so much more fun than writing about the Holocaust and alcoholism. I cannot tell you.
0: Did you watch a lot of of reruns or tapes or whatever? You know, like um, I mean, YouTube was. When were you writing this? YouTube
1: wasn't this was. This was two thousand eleven. So YouTube was around. Yeah. Yeah, but it didn't have any. Uh, YouTube did not have anything on this uh, no. meeting between Elvis and Nixon. Interesting. Maybe a couple of videos. Maybe a couple. But I had to. Uh, uh, I, w- I had Netflix at the time, and Where? they had the uh, the DVDs. Na- the, mm-hmm. the DVDs mm-hmm. from the National Archives, and also. I heard that the most requested photo of the National Archives was of Elvis and Nixon shaking hands in the Oval Office. So it's like okay so that became like a big part of it. And
0: with the dialogue when you went back in for revisions were you cutting a lot of it down cuz you know how Elvis had a very specific... Very specific way he spoke and so did Richard Nixon.
1: Oh, we had a lot of different drafts. I kept mm-hmm. writing it and writing it and then what happened was I never knew if it was going to get produced. Even though I was being paid uh, option money, you know, you don't know. It could have gone away and then one day I get a call you know, that it's get, getting made. So it was like years between and I had no idea, right? But about three Three years maybe, after I wrote it and totally given up, except for the option money, I decided to submit it to a film festival, the Page Screenwriting Festival. And I got notified after submitting that there were 5,000 entries. So like, I stopped checking the emails. And then one day I get a phone call and they say, aren't you interested that you've made it into the finals? And I'm like, but I, I'm blocking your emails now because it was spam. Like, no, we were trying to get a hold of you to tell you you've been in the quarterfinal non quite I can't even say if quarterfinals, semifinals, finalists, whatever, however it works again, dyslexia. But um yeah, we, we made it into the top one hundred. And it did we didn't win, but it was a finalist. That script. And I'd been working on it the whole time. So that's you know, uh, like not with the other two guys, that was just mine. But I did put their names on it because I had to. You know, they uh, at one point did put in a word or two, I guess. And so I, um, uh, I gave up on, on all of that after the, uh, the thing didn't win and didn't touch it again. And then I got the phone call that Kevin Spacey's been cast and uh, the movie's a go. Why do you think most people fail in Hollywood? Most people fail when they come to Hollywood? Yeah, Uh, well I have to say uh, obviously there's um, a delusional factor (laughs) where you really think it's not going to be as hard as it actually is. And I don't know if uh, it's because humans are maybe um, we're inspired by uh, attraction, and like we see what being a celebrity attracts. They're very attractive. They're bright and shiny, and they play roles. They play instruments. You know, like I want to play for a living. So they, uh, the people who strive for it, don't have a real idea. Of uh, the hard work and tremendous luck involved to being one of the few that actually make it. So uh, they're setting themselves up for failure and that's why um, I thought I was always a very practical person and I thought well if I'm going to work regularly and I can't seem to audition well I better create a public access TV show because it was before the Internet and then once the Internet my own YouTube tool to use. That was one of my tools. Another one was to uh, write a screenplay that I was able to act in although on Elvis and Nixon the role that I wrote for myself uh, was given to another actress who had a big social media following.
0: Oh. and knowing that that stuff happens unfortunately and it's devastating why do you think some people are able to pick themselves back up and continue on? If some people get mad and say, I'm done. If the system's rigged. I'm going. I'm driving back.
1: I did have, when I was working at the International House of Pancakes, acting like I was okay with it, uh, I did have a recurring nightmare that uh, I was being shot every night. There was a regular customer who'd come in. And, um, and I was wondering to myself, why am I showing up for this? And when I woke up, I called my agent and told him to throw away my pictures and resume. I was done. I was done. And now, um, at this stage of my life, I can tell you I'm done with being done. I've quit quitting. I can't seem to quit. Uh, if, if, if there were a way, uh, I when YouTube came along and I started getting millions of views a month and then millions of views a week, it was like, yes. And so I went full on, you know, I'm going to just do this. And of course uh, the views have dropped down, but that was inspiring too. It gave me my own venue. But if I were to do it for the money, I would quit too. There's no money in it. Although I do get residual checks but why the government would take 6 cents out of my 12, I don't know. But I do get residuals, as you can see.
0: What's the best year you've had in Hollywood?
1: I thought the best year, I actually did a YouTube video saying 30 year overnight success. <laughs> uh, thinking that Elvis and Nixon was going to be the best year. Here I Uh, Written this amazing screenplay. It was uh, nominated and won awards and starred big stars and all that I thought that was good and it was actually one of the worst because I didn't um, understand although I've made it a joke in the past how writers can be treated and uh, it was just not a happy experience at all however uh One day I'll be able to watch the movie and truly enjoy it, but not yet.
0: So was that your worst year? Because I was going to ask you, what was your worst year? You thought it was going to be your best?
1: That's why I guess it was the best of years. It was the suckiest of years. Yeah. Um, So both are true, and that seems to be the yin-yang, the real thing. Everybody's got something. I don't know. Anyone who's not dealing with something and that was my something and I think that's what you know, I tell I I would have told my myself in a letter to my young self. It's always gonna be something and Don't take it personally Uh, You're gonna get calls from the big producers Shaming you and telling you who do you think you are? You're gonna get those phone calls. Don't get it Don't take it personally. It's men doing their thing to stop you from doing yours,
0: it's always men. Did you get any? I'm, I've had a call from a few agents that said, "Oh, who, well, who agents. Do you think you are? Yeah, but women, now you're but, not yeah.
1: talking man or woman. Now you're talking career. Okay. Oh, oh that's occupation. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's yeah, gender neutral. It, it would be oh, yes, interesting. yes, and uh, so <laughs> I, I think that uh, there's also other things I would tell her. Uh, very important. See people for who they really are, not who you wish they were. Because this is a town of people who will tell you what you, they think you need to hear in order to get what they need from you. So uh, I would tell her to, uh, uh, before Google, because this was before, hell, it was before laptops, um, I would tell her you're you're it's, it's a, a, a town full of people who will misrepresent themselves and check people out and don't trust anyone be 80% less canadian and 20% more fbi
0: and canadian
1: is oh hey you wouldn't hurt me cuz i wouldn't hurt you eh we're all in this together Sure. I hurt you. That's like hurting myself. Well, that was a little. I'm from Southern Montreal. South slips in. I can't believe I forgot how to do. I spent 21 years in in uh, Montreal, and now suddenly I can't do the accent anymore. A. Eh?
0: And FBI is guilty until proven innocent, or?
1: <sighs> well, in this town, uh, just know that. People do take advantage. Uh, I was told by my first photographer, let's just call it a headshot session, where he told me after he took the pictures that all the girls do this after, and I'm like, not ain't be, you know, like all the girls, all of them, but um, at that point, you know, he had already given me something. And a glass of wine, and I was happy to do it because I was already freaked out that I wasn't on that TV show. I drove here to be on. So, yeah. Do you think Me
0: Too will still exist in this current age now with this generation going forward? Because now we're bombarded with it every day on Twitter. Somebody new is being called out, male or female.
1: Well, I I know someone who absolutely hates the Me Too movement because it changed the way they do business. And I'm like, okay, anytime anything is new, there's going to be growing pains. And and right now, it's all like getting adjusted as to what's proper. However, now that women and girls and boys are given the words to use, like, that is not appropriate. Put that back in your pants. You know, it's like before we didn't even have. that's like, oh, it must be me. Was I wearing uh, like a, a short skirt? I mean, even though we know it's not the typical thing. Is uh, oh, I was raped. Oh, what were you wearing? I mean, that's where we're coming from. So, uh, do I think it's going to change overnight? No, but w- w- these people who are being, uh, and and I and, and, and as someone who's been assaulted. If you're being sexually assaulted, you're being assaulted by someone who is able to objectify you and not think of you as a person. And so if you are quiet, you are complicit. So not that you brought it on or not that you let it go on, just know that you have to be a champion. You have to be the hero right then and there and say, if I don't speak up now, no one will and I have a right to. No matter if they bought dinner.
0: Rape is definitely not okay. <laughs> not, not, not at all. But then there is this other element which feels like sort of the elephant in the room in Hollywood and that is what if there is you do this
1: for me and I do this for you? Well, the casting couch has always been there. Favors, You do favors for people. There has to be that line of not sex. It just can't be. You know, it's, uh, it, it's hard to change the paradigm.
0: What if somebody thinks they're different? I've got to do this. I've got to get this part. But the one thing I see about this town and having been young, growing up not in, in the industry, but then coming here at a very young age. With not a lot of guidance, is I saw a lot of people like myself that were very hungry, they would have done anything. Mm-hmm. And I see that sometimes they're still hungry and well, they're in their thirties, forties and, and that's more. why it's right. up to
1: the industry. They can't it can't be offered. You know, it's sure. like dude, you know, don't be one of them. Yeah. Um, get your sex elsewhere, get your thrills elsewhere.
0: But I mean for, for, for women or men, because it's happening to men as well. What would you tell them that they think that they'll be offered something if they just do this, and they're willing to live with that? Oh
1: yeah, you know, if you're willing to live with that, you know, if you're willing to—I mean, there are people who have sex for a donut, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would never—I never say one one case fits all. However, there has to be you know something that we expect. And something that we don't expect, and when the don't expect comes in, we're like, I know where to take that. I know how to report. Sure,
0: sure. If it's you're waking up and yeah, yeah, but otherwise, I mean,
1: it's like case by case, right?
0: But do you think we're still in that in that arena now that there's been so much,
1: so many people have? I, I would imagine people are more afraid to whip it out these days. If you laugh. Life is what? Oh, <laughs> well, here's, I, li- I live by laugh. Uh, love, acceptance, understanding, gratitude, and honesty. And that's basically, I believe that uh, laughing is what will save your mind. And it's also great ab work, like singing. And uh, acceptance is the, where you basically pick what's important to you and you accept what you can't change. And then of course you go and change what you can, that you can't accept. And uh, understanding I find would take a lot of the hatred out of uh, what's going on today with society. If People understand um, the concept of like cognitive dissonance, uh, which makes a lot of people, uh, they're not open to discussion and to changing their paradigm, and what they do is they defend and push away. But if you understand what's happening, and insecure, angry people are easy to brainwash, and it's a lot harder to convince someone that they've been fooled than to fool them. So if you understand that, you're less likely to be as angry when you're dealing with what's happening today. And gratitude is remembering that we could be dead. I always think of Carrie Fisher went through my drug rehab um, decades ago, like 20 years ago or something. And she was exactly my age. And I know that she didn't stay sober. She just couldn't. And I always think about that could have been me if I'd still, still be doing the coke and the... And then I also think about how uh, I never killed anyone. I drove drunk a lot because, like I said, it, you know, helped me merge, <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to. I thought only bad people drove under the influence, but then I became one. And again, that was you know a, a war inside me, so I drank more. But then I, you know, I was able to. Actually, get home. I'd always be shocked how my car was parked, and I, I. So I, on days that are really hard for me now, I think about that—that that I never killed anyone. Because I, being the codependent Canadian, I'd never get over that. I mean, and neither would they <laughs> or their families. So, um, uh, uh, so just being grateful that I'm not uh, an alcoholic and an addict, destroying my life and others. And um, honesty, I have to be honest with myself or, or else I, um, I'll really blow it. I'll get nervous and anxious. Um, if I try to bury red flags, um, they will be buried up my butt and that hurts. And so I've got, I've got to look at them before they go up there. Okay, so let's right. laugh, right? what's the most painful thing you went through as an addict the most painful thing i went through as an addict wow which one I have to go back into the rolodex does anybody remember rolodex i do thank goodness Mm um i would the first thing that popped to mind seeing as we're in therapy um and that's how this goes uh i i have to say the having to drink before a phone call and feeling so alone and feeling like I was going to blow every opportunity and I was never going to reach my potential. And that was something that I would feel daily because I couldn't go out. I remember one time uh, taking a big hit off my bong and then running down the stairs to get the mail because that's the only way I could get the mail. And I bumped into the mailman and exhaled, and I'm like, "Oh my God, I can never get the mail now! Like I blew my one thing I could do." And then I go back up and and drink, and also my husband was going to leave me, so uh, I remember like one time I was a bad drunk and I was waiting for him to come home, and I thought, "I wonder if I've time to 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 pour myself a drink," and I thought. No, I'll have to drink it from the bottle. And I'm drinking it. The bottle smashes. There's red wine everywhere. And turns out I had enough time because the guy never came home that night. He said, yeah, if you were such a drunk, I'd come home. And I said, sorry. So I think that was pretty painful. And then I also felt I was um, with a guy once accidentally. Um, oh,
0: wait, wait, was, uh, oh, accidentally Sorry. Well, I couldn't be
1: alone. Oh, so, like just a, one time I would go, I'd go out, I'd usually come home with someone like takeout, you know, only I'd bring home a guy. And he'd stay, <laughs> you know. Um, so, uh, one time. Was it the mailman? So it wasn't the mailman, was it? No. Oh, okay. No, know. no. Um, it was a, a guy at a bar. Oh. He said he was British, but then I found he was really from San Diego when his mother called. <laughs> oh my God. I was gullible. So wait, where was I going with so, the going oh, out to oh, get a guy? Uh,
0: so you were saying something about... The agoraphobia. Agoraphobia, but you said... <sighs> I would See, I got sidetracked because I was going to ask you what happened to the mailman? A.G.D.
1: This makes me a good
0: writer but not such a great interview. Well, no, no. I love the stories. The, the mailman, when you exhaled on him, oh. what happened? Did you ever have to see him Oh, I him don't again? know. I
1: just died a little. Oh, in you home never and saw never him came again. Out again? Okay, I see. Yeah, no, no, I never saw him again or I don't think I did. But I was already a little drunk at the time or I wouldn't have mistimed it.
0: Right. But, but you went was, to a bar, you said you always, oh, you would bring home takeout. Yes.
1: And there but were what mad. was the initial question? Perhaps that'll get oh, us back. Oh, the,
0: uh, the most difficult, painful
1: memories oh. of being an addict. Oh, yes, I remember now. Thank you. Okay, no wonder I pushed it out. I turned <laughs> to comedy, sorry. comedy wellness. Okay. Okay, one time I was with a guy who I, the, the one who pretended he was British, uh, he hit me and i i locked myself in the bathroom i was in the bathtub and i was shaking and i said ma i found my own nazis you know i made how could i made my own holocaust i'm like in the bathroom i was you know and he tried to get me deported oh my goodness so um i think that that was probably a low i was kind of used to throwing up in bathrooms all over town um i because that's how i drank i drank to the point of blacking out i'm Rarely remembered the end of the evening or looked the same <laughs> than I did at the beginning of the evening. Yeah, so, um, but I never learned. I never stopped until I was able to find some meetings where people were. I walked in and they, here were people sharing it. You threw up all in Spargo's too? Oh my goodness, what else of <laughs> horrible, embarrassing things have you done? The same things that I did. Right. You know they found the men, they found the booze, they found the drugs and they were they were like sober now. And I'm like okay, I'm going to keep coming back. You know, this is the, yeah, yeah, this is this is something I have to learn. I have to read up on. But I didn't uh, okay, so the next day they said, they said you, you can't share at a meeting unless you have 24 hours of sobriety. And I, I was like, a, I'm Canadian, a good little alcoholic, you know, I wasn't going to do that. So I thought, how am I going to get 24 hours of sobriety? I thought, okay, because my plan was to go to one meeting, go home and drink myself to death. Not, not all at once, just eventually, because I had already had a bad liver report. At 26, at UCLA, they, they told me my liver was going, I had a bad liver panel. And they told me to stop doing everything. I'm like, I went home and got so drunk because I thought, oh, my God, this is going to kill my mother, the Holocaust survivor. I'm going to die before her. Anyway, so I got really, really drunk. You know, <clears throat> So um, I, I thought, okay, how am I going to get through this 24 hours so I can share? And um, I was even offered cocaine. And it was incredible. I just thought, no, I must share. I must share once before I die. I can always die later. So I thought, okay, just get through the night, get through the night. And I did. And I went to my next meeting and I shared for the first time. I put up my hand and I'm like, you guys are taking cakes and chips for like 10 years. I can't get 10 minutes. How do you do it? And this little old lady, who's probably about 10 years younger than me, turns around and goes, oh, honey, we do it one day at a time. I'm like, like the sitcom. <laughs> Heavy. <laughs> Okay, I am going to try this. And I just kept going to a lot of meetings. And here we are, 36 years later, still sober. Because you know I, I learned, first of all, I didn't realize the guy that I was living with was bald and I didn't know. He wore a weave. Oh, how did you find out? Well, it occurred to me, his hair was like unusually thick. You know that I'm sober. I was like getting a new pair of glasses. There's actually a book like that. So one night when he, he's kept drinking heavily, so I'm sober, and I'm like obsessed with his hair. That was just <laughs> I, so I was gonna like, I'm gonna find out what's under there. So I, I, I crawl over there very quietly and I lift the thing, because he'd had a whole bottle of wine. And I saw it was a weave, it was like stuck on. And then I realized his eyes were open and he was looking at me. And I'm like, I put it down, I went back to my side of the bed. Went back. We never spoke of it but I thought if I didn't know my own husband was bald, what else have I been missing? I better stay sober because that would, you would think that would be obvious. What else, what else did I get wrong? It turns out a lot. I got a lot wrong.
0: Do you think that's why storytelling is important? Because you wanted to tell your story which was real and that is sharing. In a meeting, and essentially you're telling a story of either your day or your life or what you're struggling with. Yeah. And so then you get to do that with writing or creating these videos. Or
1: Ever since I was a kid, I created the comic books. They had. Bubbles. I wrote my words in there. Words were always important. I've won contests for writing, even as a kid. I was published as a kid. Um, Always words were very important for me to express what was going on and to put them to pictures, you know, my illustrations. It gave me uh, so much more expression that just writing couldn't. But yeah, I had to be a writer. I had to tell people. Uh, One of the reasons I, I felt I survived in certain circumstances was. I needed to tell someone what I went through, which I I heard some Holocaust survivors say too. They survived because of luck and the need to tell people what went on.